In some ways, while V6 is smaller in numerical terms, it's four times the memory cost, and that's important because then comes the issue of, well, how fast is V6 growing? Because while V4 growth isn't exactly changing your router quickly, if V6 is growing at an exponential rate, we're back into nightmare territory again. You're listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, George Michelson. Welcome back to Ping in 2023 and our first recording made in the year. This time, we're talking to Jeff Houston from APNIC Labs in his regular monthly spot on Ping. Jeff and I are discussing the ins and outs of measuring BGP internet-wide. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Ping 2023, and we're kicking off the year with another session from Jeff. Hello, Jeff. Hello. How are you, George? And Happy New Year to you and all these stalwart listeners out there. And a Happy New Year to you too, Jeff. So this time, we're here to talk about measurement, and you're going to talk to us about measurement in routing. Yes. And the reason why is kind of in some ways obvious, but in other ways, not so obvious. And the basic question is, how do you measure the internet? Now, it's kind of, how do you measure a road system? Well, I could walk out the front of my house, sit in the gutter and count the cars going by, but that's an awfully small sample of a much bigger system. And it doesn't actually capture the dynamics of the entire system. Right. But in BGP, we've got a belief that if I sit in that mythical road and measure the cars going by in BGP, I'm getting visibility to quite a large amount of what everyone else is doing. I mean, that's the premise. That's why we talk about the default free zone, right? Well, this is the beauty of routing. You see, unlike almost any other distributed protocol that we've ever tried, the routing system brings the internet to you and me and everyone else. Everybody sees the entire collection of reachable prefixes from the front of their house, from their BGP device. And so why we measure BGP and why we're so interested in it, one reason is, is because this is a window on everything. The entire sort of internet universe is there in BGP. So to go back to the road analogy, if you did this in the road, if we sat in the road and measured cars, the immediate criticism would be that's completely non-reflective of traffic on a freeway, behavior on a bus network, behavior on the bridge into town. And we've just said, in BGP, you see everything because of this behavior that you get told everything everywhere all the so time. Let's, let's map the analogy through. Rather than sitting in the gutter watching cars, I ring up whoever makes maps probably Google, and I get a map of the city. But that's okay. Tomorrow, I'll do the same, and the day after, and the day after. And what I'm really interested in is where does the map change? As some developer builds some new Greenfields residential, there'll be more roads. As someone whacks in a new highway, there'll be new highways. And if you sort of accelerate this view and look at it at the long term, as new 
cities pop up, there'll be new highways. The roads will reflect the distribution of population activity over time. Now, interestingly, the routing protocol, if you look at that as an analogy of a map of the internet, is actually not a bad analogy. So this isn't the measurement of volume of things seen, volume of cars, number of people on the roads. It's the measurement of how big the road network is itself. It's measuring change in the map. Right. And you can infer back to the population, to the cars, to the density, because more roads carries more traffic. And you wouldn't put in more roads unless you had more. And so you can make a whole bunch of inferences by just looking at BGP, looking at the topology and connectivity of the internet, and then infer from that how much it's growing, where it's growing. And because we can actually map the routing information to geography, we can do a damn good fine idea of going, where does it grow? So it's BGP, it's measuring the map. Where is the data actually coming from? Is this coming from one of the central collection points of the state of BGP? Well, I suppose we've got to talk about two things here. And one is the routing protocol itself and then looking at it. Right. Routing is a very, very strange protocol. It's an instance of a so-called flooding protocol. The aim of a routing protocol, and BGP is certainly an excellent example, is to make sure that every computer that is speaking BGP knows the same information at the same time as everyone else. Now, that's a very big claim, and that's not exactly true. So let's sort of sort this out a little bit. There are big BGP speakers and there are little ones. The little ones cheat and only have a partial view of the world and have this sort of pseudo direction called default that says, if I don't know where something is, send it to someone who does. But if you look at all the collection of the someones who know everything, that's the group we're interested in. That's the group that has to hold the entirety of the routing information that is available on the internet and is current. Now, if I operate one of these big BGP speakers, and that's not a difficult thing, anyone can set one up and run it, it's a so-called default-free BGP speaker, then I get to see the same as everyone else. I get to see the internet in real time in its entirety. Because the way the routing protocol actually works is that everyone makes local forwarding decisions based on global knowledge knowledge of where every prefix is relative to themselves. It's a bit like when I drive my car to the shops, I actually use a global map of the entire terrestrial road network. And each time I reach an intersection, I consult this gigantic map to say, should I turn right or left? Now, I could do it more efficiently, but this is one way of solving the problem. And that's the way BGP does it. So, if you're one of these big players, default-free zones, it's the same, but it kind of isn't, is it? There's a little bit of variance that creeps in between what they consider state of the world. So, yes, this is, again, one of these, well, in theory, it should work one way, but in practice, it works entirely differently. We started to sort of think about this, gee, almost as soon as we had invented BGP back in around 92, 93. And what was kind of interesting, and for some of us almost disturbing, 
was that this flooding protocol, which was meant to flood identical information everywhere, didn't. But some people had a subtly different view. And one of the sort of responses to that was to go, well, can at least we understand this and measure it? And we started not only collecting snapshots of BGP, but a number of folks started collecting snapshots of a number of simultaneous BGP views. And the first of these that really gathered traction was actually a project done at the University of Oregon called Route Views, funded generously by the National Science Foundation and funded continuously ever since. And this is a relatively unique collection of simultaneous views from literally hundreds of default-free BGP speakers all over the world, and you actually look at what's different. The RIPE, European Regional Internet Thera in Europe, has a similar project called RIS, and they also now have a number of BGP collectors, I think 26 of them all over the world, and again, they do the same thing. And we're kind of fascinated by the differences because that's not the way BGP is meant to work. And it's sort of, why can you reach prefixes that I can't? Well, why can you get to somewhere using a different path than I should? Why are we different? And that's, I suppose, the first piece of interest. The second thing is actually all about the governance of this system. And the thing that appalls almost anyone is the observation, there is none. None. You can set up a BGP speaker, so can I. And if you know the right people or have the right customer contracts, whatever, you too can advertise networks into the routing space. It would be good if the addresses you advertise were your addresses. If you don't, we'll smack your hands and say, stop it. But beyond that, you can do anything you want. There are no rules. Now, this is an unbounded, ungoverned system. And like all unbounded, ungoverned systems, the tendency to swing from good order to chaos is kind of an invisible cliff that we're all trying to stay away from, but none of us know where the edge is. And so every year I kind of look at the routing system going, are we any closer to the edge of the cliff? Are we going to kill the routing system? And this is not an idle investigation. But I suppose you had to be there at the beginning to see it. The first time we headed to the edge of the cliff and fell off was actually in the early days of the National Science Foundation's NFSnet. And they were running as routers. Um, this is a piece of archaeology. IBM PCXTs. RTs. PCRTs. Were they RTs or XTs? Yes, they were RTs. They were the ROMP chip, the first RISC chip that IBM had produced, and they were running a BSD operating system on them. And they were running Gate D. And Gate D, that Yakov Rector was hand-nursing through, had 20,000 routing entries, just 20,000. And when we in Australia joined the network with a whole bunch of really crappy little prefixes all over the place. We and a few others pushed them over the edge. All of a sudden, there were 22,000 prefixes in the global routing table, yet the hardware that was running the NSF, NFSnet had capacity for 20. So this is an instance of a system which had no formalism that said there's a boundary. 
we're designed as a system to only handle 32,000 routes, and everybody knows that, and they make the decision, oh, we're getting close. We better do something to modify how many routes we announce. There was no formal limit. So the cliff wasn't a formal declared limit. It was just, oh, the boxes we've deployed as the core routing architecture of this system happen to have a limit, and we haven't designed for it or thought about it. And in good intent, no malign intent, a large body of people join the network and bing, the volume of networks exceeds the limit. And all of a sudden, connectivity becomes random. So that's an interesting point. You're saying it's not that everybody fell apart and no one could reach anything. Well, you see, the thing is, when you've got a store of 20,000 entries and you've got 25,000 sort of marbles you need to put in this box, everyone's going to put in a different set of 20,000. Router reset, I reload the routing table, and I'm going to have a different set of reachable prefixes than you. And this creates even more chaos because these poor little packets that are wandering through the default-free part of the internet, following their entries in the table, I'm trying to get to destination 10.1, is going to reach a router where that prefix isn't there. Now, I might not be able to reach that destination because one of the routers on my path has dropped that prefix, but you could because all of your routers have got it. So this is almost undiagnosable. It fails in very complex ways. And it's an instance of this idea of a globally self-consistent space. Everyone sees all BGP updates, true, therefore everyone knows how to reach all the same places, false. It wasn't coherent behaviour. It wasn't. And... And in some ways, then, we get into, I suppose, the world of the last 20-odd years because nobody, nobody builds a router with infinite memory. (laughs) So for the first step here, Oz, they stopped implementing it on PCRTs with a 20,000-route limit. Bigger box, let's go to 100,000 routes, surely. Let's go to 500,000 routes, surely. And now, of course, the default-free part of the internet is now and we're just getting close at the end of 2022, it's 950,000 entries. So we've probably gone through four or five rounds of people saying, if you believe you're part of this core network, you have a social obligation to increase your memory footprint to be able to cope with a new threshold. And each time it's pushing the limit a little higher. And now we're at the point, you said it's 900 and... Well, I say 950, but again, let me correct this. When I look at all of RIS and all of route views, some folk are just on 900,000 at the end of the year, and some folk are at 958,000 at the end of the year, and most folk are in between. So it's in V4, and this is IPv4, in V4, we're around that 900 to 950,000 entries. The variance between them sounds like you're saying it's less than 10% variance in the main. We're talking about a core set of people, and I could look at that and say, well, okay, there is 10% variance. It's going to be things like prefix filtering, summation, those kinds of things that that cause that. No, and sometimes it really is you can't reach places that I can reach. And you kind of think they'd be ringing up the help desk going, whinge, 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 I can't get to X. But my suspicion is, and this is one of the dark suspicions, that as long as you can get to Google and Meta and Amazon and Microsoft, nobody cares. And so there's all these kind of unreachable places that no one knows they're unreachable, except when you look in the routing system going, it's not one routing system, it's actually 
slightly fragmentary. But we're heading off the path here because the real dilemma in this kind of unbounded growth of the routing space is actually over in vendor land. When you design the next big box and you're trying to put in forwarding tables inside line cards, these are not field replaceable units. This is the fastest memory known to the business. This is the most expensive memory in the box. And what you can't do, because no customer can afford it, is over-provision, but what you can't do is under-provision. So you're trying to design a technology that goes into a unit that's the least likely to be replaced in the field. It's a long-term commit, and you can't just randomly swap parts in and out. It's a long-term design It's a long-term commitment, and you're trying to understand the field life of this unit. How long will it continue to route the internet? Which means rate of change, the derivative measure of how quickly things in this system are changing, is actually very important to the vendors because that's their projection forward. That's right. So back in around 2008, it was actually some folk in Cisco who dived at the alarm bells going, the growth rate's faster than Moore's Law. This is doubling really quickly. We're in deep, 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 deep trouble because the cost of routing is going to accelerate because Moore's Law kinds of gives us a constant cost measure of what growth can be accommodated without going off the deep end. And we've just blown it. And so not only are we interested in the size of the routing table, because that's a problem, we're interested in its slope, how quickly is it growing, because that's another problem. Where many technology decisions are driven by rate of change in things that are directly in your control. If I continue to get customers at this rate, then I must grow out my DC at this scale. If I continue to hold archives at this rate, then... I must get more disk space. This one, it's nothing about your customers. It's about the entire world of BGP speakers (laughs) deciding to increase their rate of message release and route release and fragmentation of prefixes. Nobody has control over the rate of change. Deeply disturbing. Yes, it's the tragedy of the commons. No one's in control, but everybody has to cope. Everybody has to cope. So these annual exercises of trying to actually look at the size of the routing space and its rate of change are actually quite unique in some ways and astonishingly helpful for literally everybody because this is kind of what drives how long your equipment in the field will last, what equipment should you be buying today to cope tomorrow, and how long will these tomorrows hold out before you hit the wall of my hardware can't cope anymore? There are too many routes. I have to push somebody off or buy a new box. So if we just divert down a side alley for a minute, we've known since around 2011 that we were functionally scraping the bottom of the barrel in IPv4 addresses to give to people whose primary job is routing. We've been consuming the last remaining space. And address management policy has had to move to a place where we constrained quite tightly how many addresses were given out to new entrants. And we also saw the liberalization of address delegation into a marketplace. People were buying and selling blocks of address. 
So there were quite a few assumptions that came with that. People all assumed, oh, well, we're going to see some consolidation of address holdings. Or some people would think, oh, well, we're going to see fragmentation of address holdings. Now, if that were true, we'd see that in BGP, wouldn't we? We'd expect to see across that time period that there's visible increase in the amount of prefix assertion as a function of scarcity of the resource, say. So reality has a weird way of just doing something really different. We thought that running out of V4 addresses was a brick wall. And it was certainly clear a year before we were running out, back in 2010, that our foot was firmly planted on the accelerator. We were pressed to the floorboard. We were rolling out the last parts of DSL, the first parts of high-speed fibre. We were doing broadband to the workplace, broadband to the masses. We were just running at full speed as an industry. All of a sudden, addresses ran out. Did we crash and burn? No. No. We kept going. And indeed, the growth in the V4 routing table actually was highest in 2012 through to 2018, higher than any other period in the past. You kind of go, but we ran out of addresses. Where was all this address coming from? And the answer was, I suppose, twofold. One is everyone knew it was coming and there was a certain amount of stockpiling going on. So we started running through the stockpiles. That's the first thing. The second thing is the way routing actually works. Because if I advertise a million addresses or I advertise one address, from the routing perspective, that is one advertisement. So whether I advertise a huge amount of space or a tiny space makes no difference to the size of the routing table. It's one slot. And what we started doing when we ran out of address space, or at least when the major supplies came in, you know, stop. We got out our carving knives and we sliced and diced. And we started giving out smaller and smaller allocations of addresses. And we actually, out there in network land, started moving smaller and smaller allocations around. So all of a sudden, rather than having an average advertisement of, gee, around five to 8,000 addresses in each routing slot, we started going down and down and down. By 2020, it was just a little over 4,000 individual addresses in each routing slot. Today, it's hitting 3,000 addresses. So we're starting to sort of finally dice up the space. And what happens now is we still have a growth in the number of routed entries, but each entry is actually describing smaller and smaller amounts of reachable address space. So oddly enough, the V4 exhaustion didn't make the growth in V4 routing go away. It actually made it worse in some ways. And that exponential growth continued for some years after exhaustion. Interesting. Never thought that was going to happen, but nevertheless, it did. You kind of go, so what tells you we ran out of address space? Ah, I can look at the routing table and do a different metric. Don't look at the number of entries in the table, but look at the total amount of space, of real estate, that the entire routing table describes. Now, we know for a fact that 2 to the 32 is 4.6 billion. That's just maths. So of everyone 
saw the entirety of the v4 space in routing, it would cover 4.6 billion addresses. Fair enough. How much of that space is actually used in the routing table? Hmm. Interesting question. Three billion? You have to allow for the occasional lunacy of someone accidentally announcing massive amounts of address space. And you have to allow for the small amounts of the address space that are not ever meant to be seen in global routing. So it's 4 billion is the maximum, 4.6 billion is the maximum extent, but with some caveats to things we know there shouldn't be there. And with a second caveat of sometimes people do silly things. If you discount those, there's a plausible number as a maximum, isn't there? Yes. And currently, we're sitting at around 4.43 billion addresses being actually routed. Wow. 4.6. Wow. And that's phenomenally close to the expected maximum. The amount of space that isn't routed is actually really small. And in fact, it's really just the blocks of space that have been reserved. It used to be lower. It used to be around 2.7, 170-8 at 16 million per slash 8. Yeah, 2.7 billion. The reason why it's got higher, oddly enough, is you can blame it on the US Department of Defence. You see, in the very early days of the internet, the US Department of Defence got a whole bunch of addresses that they never announced on the internet. They were used for, I don't know, military purposes. But back in 2021, I think they had a bit of a a stop and think. And I think there were two thoughts. One is, if we don't use it publicly, other people will, and they'll sort of seize and usurp our use to those addresses. That'd be bad. And secondly, they thought, if we could sell these addresses, that would be a lot of money these days, if the price of addresses keeps on going up. So maybe we better announce them now review to doing something else with them later. And so across 2021 and 22, the US Department of Defense announced all of its stockpile into the global routing space. Not many entries, but a huge amount of space. That's the reason why now the number of sort of the amount of advertised address space is actually really quite high. So just to recap, we have the measure of how many things have to be announced, discrete prefixes, originated by discreetly different people, had a certain behavior that was a consequence of scraping the bottom of the barrel, wasn't quite what we expected, but nonetheless drove a pace of increase. Now we have a different measure. Okay, we've reached the point where we are definitely at the end of the barrels, but the amount of address space is a bounded number. Let's make an allowance for the parts we wouldn't expect to see because they're reserves. How much of the address space do we see? And if that number is 4.6 billion, we're now seeing well north of 90% kind of, of that there. volume of address kind of visible there. in routing. Now, that's okay. Wow. But as I said, the real issue was not the size, the amount of address space per se, but the number of routing entries, the slicing and dicing. Because where do you stop? In some ways, it's kind of, Well, why don't we route every individual address? That means the routing space now has 4.6 billion, not million, billion entries. And that's a big number. (laughs) Well, in control terms for the line cards, 
that's fine. The manufacturers just have to put that much memory on the card and never worry about it again. And the customers don't know how to pay for their massive router with a huge amount of extraordinary high-speed memory, and it all falls apart. And so the trend from 2011 to around, geez, mid-2021 was slicing and dicing. More routing entries with much the same address space because we were advertising ever finer prefixes. Now, there's the belief in the community, the broader community, that you can't effectively route more than a slash 24. But you said at the very beginning of this ping episode, there's no governance structure here. There's no rule book. There's no declared statement. Thou shalt not route longer than a 24. Well, these route collecting beasts, risks and route views actually show that folk advertise smaller prefixes, 25 slash 26s. In other words, they advertise finely grained prefixes. It's just that they don't necessarily reach everywhere, but they kind of slip out and they go an awfully long way. So one theory was we could keep doing this for a long, long time. Now, are we is the next question. And this is, I suppose, something that's happened in the last year across 2022, that the number of routed prefixes has actually stopped growing. It used to be at an exponential scale. That's long since gone. It used to be linear. That's now slowing down. It's sublinear. And oddly enough, the peak, the end, is in sight. It's likely that the V4 routing space is going to top out at around 1 million, 1.2 million, maybe that's a bit optimistic, 1.1 million entries in around 2025 and then decline. Almost historically, the internet will stop growing and even decline in V4. So we saw exponential growth that led vendors to worry it exceeded pace of Moore's law. We then saw a transition to what was closer to a linear rate of growth that at least would have given them breathing space. The trend has gone sublinear that it's below the rate we would have predicted as we release the final amounts of address. And you're predicting forward that it will actually turn the corner and reduce, which would imply consolidation of holdings and consolidation of announced prefixes, not more prefixes, less. If we get to that less. Now, it's always hard in the prediction game to understand if what you're seeing is short-term or long-term. And there is no doubt the last two years has been hard for the world. I'm talking COVID. I'm actually talking an energy crisis with military unrest over in Eastern Europe. I'm talking climate change. And supply chain disruption, but also access to capital to make capital investments. Right. The internet's a business like any other. It has to raise money in the capital markets. It has to do its thing. And in some ways, the unbounded optimism that the internet would cure all ills has long since gone. And we're just another business. And are we seeing a short-term trend that this is just the last couple of difficult years and growth is curtailed because we've got better things to do like panic about energy? Or is this a longer-term trend that will persist irrespective? And I can't answer that. I'm not sure anyone can really answer that. But the last two years has set forward a new direction for the internet, which if we extrapolate that forward, 
peaks us out in a few years and says, well, that's it. In B4 terms, it's going nowhere. Now, I've been careful to say V4 because we haven't talked about our friend IPv6. Which had a different dynamic in distribution because we were able to take something that was predicated on scarcity as the key driver and make a slightly subtle shift to saying, well, we certainly aren't scarce in a 128-bit number scheme, but we're going to be cautious. Nonetheless, the unit of address that we routinely give people is a remarkably large unit. And if we measured the rate at which people come back and ask for more, V4 to V6, we can be quite confident people aren't saying, I don't have enough V6. So there's a certain alteration of the supply side of addresses between the two, but we're in BGP, Jeff. So tell us about BGP and V6 dynamics. Again, we thought V4 would hit the wall, and we thought when V4 hits the wall, we better have V6 up and running everywhere. By 2011, the amount of V6 out there should be 100% of the internet. It wasn't. It wasn't even 1%. It was fractions of a percent. For some reason, the industry never really took this seriously. And you kind of go, well, did it change at all? Interesting. Not for years. It stayed below 5% up until 2016. Its growth was remarkably slow, and it wasn't really until post-2016 that growth in V6 really took off. But when I say took off, even today, it's only across 30% of the V4 internet. It's still a little sibling of the larger V4 internet. Now, you kind of go, well, if it's always a little sibling, if it's always smaller, what's your problem? The size of the V6 routing table isn't exactly that big. V4 might be at a million entries, and V6 is at 172,000 entries. What's your problem? Ah. V6. V4, 32-bit address space. Every entry in your memory table of routes is 32 bits long. V6, 128 bits of address space. That's four times larger. Every entry in your routing table is now four times the size in memory cost of V4. So those 172,000 entries is 680,000 equivalents in V4. So for a vendor scaling their footprint of online card memory costs... The most expensive memory on the planet, yes. Although the hope was V6 will necessarily, not necessarily, but could be less numbers of prefixes visible at four times the cost, we've arrived at a point that they're actually within scale of each other because 600-odd thousand and a million are, broadly speaking, in the same footprint of cost, aren't they? They're getting to be very, very similar. So in some ways, while V6 is smaller in numerical terms, it's four times the memory cost, and that's important because then comes the issue of, well, how fast is V6 growing? Because while V4 growth isn't exactly changing your router quickly, if V6 is growing at an exponential rate, we're back into nightmare territory again. Because if we're doubling, even every three years, that means that the cost of routing is again going to get bigger and bigger 
very, very quickly. So let's have a look at V6. How fast is it growing in terms of the routing space? Now, this is not good information. This is not a happy little story because it's growing and it's growing for two reasons. One, there are more people connecting. That's something. But two, we're starting to use V6 for traffic engineering the same way as we used V4. Right. And so this is where necessarily to differentiate between some bandwidth availability on two links or between two different grades of destination and behavior differences, you take your allocation of address and you carve it up into two chunks or four chunks or eight chunks and you announce them differentially in order to achieve an engineering outcome like load balancing or differentiation of traffic. Routing will always follow the most specific route. So one way to make sure that the traffic follows where you want it to go, you're right, you advertise more specifics. So we give out slash 32s, and that's an awfully big amount of address space in V6. And there are rough numbers, 80,000 AS holders at this time, which equates to there being rough numbers, 80 to 100,000 allocations of V6 that are large chunks of address. Well, in V6, there's actually only 30,000 ASs, so the 30,000 network providers with V6 out there. And And 160, 170,000. So most of these folk were given or allocated a slash 32 or larger. There are very few that actually got less space. But when we look at the routing table, 47% of all the route entries are slash 48s. Oops. 78% of the routing tables are actually really very, very small entries. So what we're actually doing is slicing and dicing in V6. And now the problem is almost mirroring the problem in V4. And it's not just the growth of V6, it's the growth of more specifics that are causing the V6 routing table to just balloon outwards. So it's growing in terms of router prefix count by around 18 to 20% per year, inexorably, every year. And that's a big number in terms of trying to provision a router to last for five years in the field. If you've got to buy something that's twice as big as what you need today to accommodate what you need by the end of its service lifetime. And so V6 has a completely different dynamic because in some ways, this fragmentation of the V6 routing space is, well, out of control. Everyone is saying, well, I'll just advertise slash 48s. That's not a problem, is it? Well, until it is a problem. And it's kind of, when is it a problem? When it's a problem for everybody, when we really are pushing the edge now. Right now, you're going to need the equivalent of 2 million entries, 2 million 32-bit entries in your line cards to do full routing. 1 million 32-bit entries for V4 and another million 32-bit entries for V6 because V6 is four times bigger. And the issue is the V6 number just keeps on growing. So in five years' time, 2028, if that exponential growth and that fragmentation continues from 172,000, we'll be up to 750,000 V4 entries, but they're four times bigger. They're four times bigger. Wow. So all of a sudden, we're getting up to 3 million entries, 32-bit entries, just for V6. 
And that's almost an order of magnitude up on their current hardware. And this isn't motivated by primary drive of I'm a unique entity, I just need to exist in routing. This is I need to engineer more efficient use of my underlying substrate, links, bandwidth. I need to achieve different outcomes. Right. I just have to tear what I've got apart to do it. That's how you do TE, traffic engineering, in BGP. Let's put a few more things together. The speed of fiber. How much capacity can you put into fiber? So far, bizarrely, we've been able to double fiber capacity every two years. Oh, that's amazing. We're now doing terabit per second connections. We're jamming enormous amounts of data through fiber. What that means is the per packet rate is increasing, doubling every two years. So if I want a high-speed router to put at the end of a terabit circuit, I need to do an awful lot of packets per second. And every single one of those packets has to do a lookup in a routing table. Oops. So now I'm saying, You've got to make that routing table really, really big every couple of years. But secondly, and this is the problem, the memory speeds of memory haven't changed in the last 10 years. We've been able to make bigger chips, but we haven't been able to make faster chips. And so all of a sudden, trying to look at a modern high-speed router with a five-year service lifetime sitting at the end of -of state-of-the-art fiber capacity is now going to be looking at how do we make the memory cycles or the memory capacity increase by a factor of 10, but the raw memory clock cycle will remain constant. All of a sudden, I have to do massively parallel architectures inside the hardware. And the problem with parallelism is that it scales linearly. In other words, twice as big costs twice as much. I don't get economies of scale. Upping the clock speed is different. Upping the clock speed gives me economies of scale because faster can actually be done at almost the same unit price. But as soon as I have to do twice the amount of hardware to get the equivalent of twice the throughput, I'm a loser. And what this kind of paints a picture of in the next sort of coming five years is that the cost of basic infrastructure per packet is actually going to increase. If we wish to fill up the fiber lines with packets, We're actually going to have bigger bits of hardware with more amounts of parallel processing because we can't make the clock go faster. And what that actually means is the cost of these things, a unit price of per packet, is actually going up. Now you sit there and go, hmm, yeah, and I'm going, but this is what the numbers are telling us, oddly enough, all about BGP. This is kind of putting the BGP data together and building up, well, where's it going? And so you go, well, why are you measuring BGP, Jeff? And why do you spend all this time looking at this? And the answer is, because in some ways, this is right at the heart of what the internet's about in terms of making it efficient, making it cost-effective, making it work for everyone, making it affordable. And if we blow it, if we kind of push this routing system beyond the kind of sweet spot sweet spot of efficiency, then we've all got a problem sooner or later. It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating, Jeff. And a strange outcome to arrive 
at the point where we think the thing is scaling beautifully and getting into its mature years and just around the corner <laughs> is this impending <laughs> problem of what happens under continued growth and improvement in our expectations of what the technology yes, delivers. You know, in, in some ways it's fascinating that a protocol we invented in about 1990 for a routing table of 20,000 entries is now carrying the traffic of 2023 and it's carrying a million in v4 200,000 in v6 and it's the same protocol nothing has changed in that protocol it's one of the few protocols that has continued to hold it all together and you go well done us aren't, aren't we fantastic as engineers and the answer is well yes but but does it scale? And the answer is, well, yeah, we were kind of relying on the silicon folk to get us out of this hole. And the silicon folk are saying, I can make bigger chips, but I can't make faster chips. Oh, dear. Kind of, oh, oh, dear. <laughs> Time to search for a new career path, possibly, Jeff, before things get a little ugly. Uh, quantum networking is going to save all of us. That was absolutely fascinating. Thanks, Jeff. And I'm sure there's going to be more on this and I look forward to hearing about it. Thank you, George. And thank you listeners for hanging in there. Thanks indeed. Bye. If you've got a story or research to share here on Ping, why not get in contact by email to ping at apnic.net or via the APNIC social media channels. Also, remember, the measurement at apnic.net mailing list on Orbit is there to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, or to seek feedback from the community on your own measurement projects. Be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time, 